having started the Bible survey with great thoroughness and doing a study on the actual index, uh, we, we now move on to the first book, and Genesis. So if you turn to Genesis, and I'll give you the relevant background, a leading group of the 80s, formed by Phil Collins. Oh, sorry, wrong note. Sorry, sorry. Yes, that's, that's, that's my, my, my history of rock notes. Sorry. Of course, it's Bible study tonight, isn't it? Right, now Genesis. Its name comes from the Greek word for beginnings. Um, that's, that's how the Jews named it. <clears throat> and at the time of Jesus and the time of the Old Testament, you know, being compiled, it was, you know, there was one called the Septuagint, which was a Greek translation, and most of the names for the books that we've got come from that. Not all of them, but most of them. So it's the Greek word for beginnings. And so Genesis is the book of beginnings. That's why it's the first book, just after the index. And it tells us how everything kicked off, how everything started. <clears throat> and what we're going to see is that it specifically records nine beginnings. And if you understand the nine beginnings that it records, you'll begin to understand the purpose of the book, why it's there in the Bible. So I've got to list these nine things now. Firstly, it lists the beginning of the universe and planet Earth as man's habitation. Secondly, it records the beginning of the human race. Thirdly, it records the beginning of human sin. Number four, the beginning of redemptive revelation. See what that is a bit more in a moment. Number five, it recalls for us the beginning or the genesis of the institution of the human family. Number six, the beginning of godless civilization. Number seven, the beginning of the multiplicity of human languages, and uh, for the less astute, multiplicity means why there's more than one. <laughs> number eight, it recalls the beginning of the nations, and then number nine, and the real point of it, it recalls the beginning of the Hebrew race, the beginning of the Jews. Now, <clears throat> we're going to quickly, or I'm going to quickly show you the outline that Genesis takes, i.e. the manner in which it's compiled. Because very often if someone's preparing a historical document, there's a framework around which they compose. It will be a historical document or even a novel, all right? But, but I want to show you the framework around which it's constructed and written, all right? And, um, and again, the framework reveals the actual reason why we have the book in the Bible. And uh, basically, what you get, there, there, there's um, an introduction, a kind, you, you get a general uh, account of creation. Uh, the theologians like to call it the creation hymn, and you'll see where that fits in in one moment. And uh, that's in fact in chapter 1 and then chapter 2 in the first three verses. But after that, that like creation hymn, as one might call it, you have ten divisions, or if you like, ten separate accounts as the NIV calls them, or generations, as the King James Version calls them. I.e., after that initial creation hymn, as you read through the book, you'll find it's divided into ten different segments. And in the NIV, the segments are called accounts, the account of, or in the King James Version, the generations of. 
i.e. Genesis is structured around family trees, around genealogies. That is how the book is structured. And it's structured around ten of them, all right? Now then, the first one, and again, I'm just going through these very quickly, the first is the account of the generation of the heavens and the earth. Now, that's not an actual family of tree, but that is the description of God bringing everything into being. The second account is that of Adam's line, and you find that in chapter 5, verse 1. Then, in chapter 6, verse 9, you have the account of the generations of Noah, in chapter 10, verse 1, you have the generations of Noah's sons. In chapter 11, verse 10, you have the generations of Shem. Now, Shem, the reason for that, one of the sons of Noah, but Shem was the one in the Messianic line. All right? Then, in chapter 11, verse 27, you get the generations of Terah. Now, he's in there because he was Abraham's father. You'll see all this as we go through it. In chapter 25, verse 12, you get the generations of Ishmael. We're going to see um, Abraham had two sons, Ishmael and Isaac. Ishmael wasn't the messianic line, but nevertheless he gets an account of his own, the generations of Ishmael. In chapter 25, verse 19, you get the generations of Isaac. Now he was the son who was in the messianic line, so, so you had Shem, and from Shem eventually came Abraham, and from Abraham came Isaac. In chapter 36, verse 1, you get the generations or the account of Esau. Now, Esau was Isaac's son, but not in the Messianic line. And then lastly, chapter 37, verse 2, you get the generations of Jacob. And there you go back to the Messianic line. So, all I'm doing is to just show you that the book, Genesis, the history, revolves around different family trees. It revolves around genealogies. And, of course, the reason that it takes that arrangement is the reason for why the book is in there in the first place. And it is there so that you can trace the messianic genealogy. See, the whole of the Old Testament is there to trace the messianic line all leading up to Jesus. It's there to record the origin of the nation of Israel because it was through Israel that Messiah was going to come. You've got to remember what we saw last time in our introduction or our study of the actual index. You know, we did the whole Bible in one talk. And it was to see that the New Testament is the account of a man. That's Jesus. But the Old Testament is the account of the nation from which Jesus came. So therefore, in doing the whole of the Old Testament, remember, we're looking at the account of a nation. And although Genesis gives us the beginning of everything, and everything is important, it's important to know how everything began, the real point is that it's there to give us the beginning of the Jewish race. Because with the beginning of the Jewish race was the beginning of the nation through which the Messiah was going to come. So Old Testament, the record of a nation, New Testament, the record or the account of a man. So, what we're going to do now, and this is kind of basically the way we're going to be doing all the talks in the Bible survey, is that we're going to be going through it chapter by chapter. So, here we go. Now then, first of all, we're going to do this like creation hymn. And uh, the creation hymn, or the initial introduction, uh, lasts from chapter 1 and verse 1 to chapter 2 and verse 3. And uh, it is in those verses that you have the account 
of the six days of creation. And what you have there is the account of the creation of time and matter, which is very Einsteinian. In the beginning, God created the heavens and the earth. The mere fact that Genesis links the beginning of the concept of time with the beginning of the creation of matter is rather profound. So, you have the creation of time and matter. The universe is brought into being by God out of nothing, and it's all organised, and it ends up with planet Earth being made ready as man's habitation. So basically there you've got the six days of the creation of absolutely everything, but the main point being to, to, to show how planet Earth was readied as being the, the place that mankind was going to live. Now, it's, it's important that, that you understand the reason why God did it in six days, tremendously, and even more important today to understand why God did it in six days. And it's simply because he knew that if he'd done it in six minutes, no one would believe it, you see. So, there you've got beginning number one, the beginning of the universe and earth as man's habitation. So there's the first beginning. Now then, then you get the rest of chapter two. And uh, now, a lot of people try and say that in chapter two, you have a kind of a competitive account of creation. So that chapter one is one account of creation. And then chapter 2 is another account of creation. And indeed, some of the, you know, like the scholars and that, they say that Genesis wasn't written by Moses, it was written by three or four different people, and these different accounts kind of like indicate that. Well, of course, that's, that's not the case at all. Uh, you've simply got a very literary, you know, a very common literary device that you find not just in the Bible, but, but in a lot of, you know, sort of literature worldwide. And it's simply the device of that first of all you introduce the whole picture first of all you give details and you 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 give the picture of what you might call the wider backdrop and then having done that you home in on the specific point that the writer wishes to make so in chapter one what you've got is the wider story the creation of the universe and everything all right but the point of the writer wasn't to specifically home in on that, but to home in on the creation of Adam and Eve specifically. So in chapter 2, you get not a different account of creation, but now the writer is, having given the background, like the wider picture, God creating the universe and planet Earth, now he's homing in on all the details affecting the immediate um, creation of Adam and Eve. All right. So in chapter 2, there's no conflict between that and chapter 1 at all, as I've just, just shown you. But in chapter 2, we have the creation of Adam and the fact that God prohibits him from eating of the fruit of a particular tree, the tree of the knowledge of good and evil. All right? Then, because Adam is alone and God says it's not good for man to be alone, and remember God brings all the animals and Adam names them, which was a, a sign of his authority over them, but you know, no partner was, was found you know, for him. And God was kind of making him aware that if he was to have a partner, it had to be you know, something other than animals, because of course we're not animals, regardless of what the scientists say, we're not. And so then, out of one of Adam's ribs from within him, God created Eve to be his wife. So basically, chapter 2, we have the creation of Adam and Eve. So we have there beginning number 2. 
the creation of the human race. See how, how logical this is. Right, chapter 3. I'm not going to go into the details of this, but in chapter 3 you have the fall. You have Satan beguiling Eve, Eve eats of the fruit, um, you know, and incidentally it wasn't an apple, that is common myth, nowhere does the Bible say it was an apple, it just says the fruit. But even if it had have been, the real problem couldn't have been the apple in the tree, it was of course the pear underneath, wasn't it? But there you've got, okay, beginning number three, the beginning of sin, the fall of man. So now Adam and Eve, um, you know, they've, they've kind of, they've turned away from God, they've disobeyed him, and they've, they've gone the way of the serpent, they've gone the way of Satan, and now they're separated from God. And, uh, and also in chapter 3, um, you, you, you have uh, the Lord's words to Satan that um, a man would come, a man born of the woman, that a man would come who was eventually going to undo everything that Satan had done in the Garden of Eden. So whereas here in chapter 3 Adam and Eve have sinned and fallen and they're now separated from God, the Lord speaks to the servant and speaks about one who was going to come a human being to undo what Satan had done. And of course there you have beginning number four. You have the beginning of redemptive revelation. The point being, it, God wasn't caught short when Adam and Eve sinned. It wasn't that something went wrong and God had to start scratching his head and come up with a plan of salvation. He knew before he created. And indeed in Revelation, uh, which is very much the, the, the counterpart to Genesis, because in Revelation you have not beginnings, but you have endings. But the link there is that there Jesus is referred to as the Lamb of God who was slain before the foundation of the world. Because of course, you know, God had the plan of salvation ready even before Adam and Eve had sinned. So then, after that, Adam and Eve get kicked out of the garden, and uh, <coughs> they're subject now to spiritual death, they've died spiritually, and therefore they've become subject to physical death. So there you have in chapter 3, the fall of man. Now then, in chapter 4, <coughs> you have the story of Cain and Abel, Adam and Eve's children, or two of them at any rate. Don't, don't think that, you know, that Cain and Abel were the only children that Adam and Eve at this point had had, that they, they weren't, but there were two of them. And here, we have beginning number five, the beginning of the institution of the human family. That Adam and Eve, they're not just husband and wife together, they have now done, as God said right back in the beginning, as soon as he created them, be fruitful and multiply. Okay, so therefore they've had children, and here we're given the story of two of those children. So we have the institution of the human family. And uh, the story that we actually have about them is that Abel, was accepted by God. You know, I have the story about the two sacrifices. Abel brings a sacrifice and God accepts it. And um, Cain brings a sacrifice and God rejects it. And of course, the reason that God accepted the sacrifice of Abel is that Abel brought a blood sacrifice. He killed a lamb. Now, do you remember in the garden when Adam and Eve sinned, because of course they got saved, we saw this in the Salvation series, that what the Lord did is he killed a beast and he gave them the skins and they received the skins, and it covered their nakedness. So the point was, from the very beginning, Adam and Eve were shown by the Lord that salvation or redemption had to be through the shedding of blood. And, uh, and of course, Abel, who is a believer and who is faithful to the Lord, brings a blood sacrifice. So we know that Abel is a believer. However, Cain, 
who was like a farmer, Cain brought the produce of the fruit of his hands. He brought kind of like harvest festival type stuff. And of course, that shows he was an unbeliever, by which I mean he was into salvation by works. He, he felt that he could follow the Lord and worship the Lord based on what he'd done, whereas Abel accepted that it could only be on the basis of what the Lord had done. Without the shedding of blood, there's no um, forgiveness for sins. And so, therefore, Abel is accepted by God and Cain is rejected. And, of course, what happens is that Cain murders Abel. So here we have, right at the beginning of human history, we have murder happening. And not only that, this was, you know, kind of the murder of literally two brothers in the same family. And, and of course, it stands forever of a, a picture of the ultimate enmity between the children of Satan and the children of light. Because, of course, Satan hates the Lord. And therefore, the children of darkness have that antipathy, have that kind of hatred, that, that resistance against those who follow the Lord. And you see that because Cain ended up hating Abel, so he kills him. And then what happens then is that, that, that Cain, because there was no capital punishment then, there's no human government at that point, there wasn't a state, as it were. And, uh, and what happens is that, uh, you know, God marks Cain. We don't know what the mark was in any way at all, but God marks Cain. Um, and this was so that no one would take it into their own hands to put him to death, because God had not granted capital punishment. No one had the right to kill another human being at this point. And uh, so, so Cain is marked, and he goes off to a place nearby called the Land of Nod. Now, obviously, at this point, you know, you get people who are, uh, you know, very fast to say the land of Nod. Perhaps if we could just wake John up at this point. Good morning. <laughs> now then, obviously, you always get your clever dicks, you know, who sort of think that the Bible's full of mistakes. And they say, well, you know, sort of like if Adam and Eve, you know, were the only people on the earth and, and Cain killed Abel, well, you know, if Cain went off to the land of Nod and got married, who did he marry? Now, of course, the point is that, that, that whereas here in chapter 4 we're specifically given the story of Cain and Abel, two of Adam and Eve's children, it doesn't say that they were the only children that Adam and Eve had had up till that point. And this could have been, in fact, hundreds of years after the fall. So the point is that generations of people have grown up, and obviously in the beginning brothers and sisters were marrying, but by now there's been a real population explosion. Uh, you know, I mean, the, the effects of sin aren't really taking, there's, there's perfect climate still, there's probably at this point no illness or anything like this, and of course they're, they're breeding like rabbits, you know, so, so, so you've got a population explosion. So by the time Cain kills Abel, Cain can go off to the land of Nod, and you know, it's a city, a civilization, and of course there are a, a, a sort of like low and loads of people all over the world as it was then. And uh, so therefore we have beginning number six and it's the beginning of godless civilization. And uh, all you have to do is uh, in chapter four read verses 17 to 24 and uh, that will confirm to you that the civilization that was then you know well well established on the earth that the civilization was extremely godless. It wasn't like Adam and Eve and Abel, a civilization of believers. It, it, the, the world by then was an evil place, all right? And the chapter there ends with Seth, the story of Seth, 
being born to Adam and Eve. And presumably the significance of that was simply that, you know, you know, sort of God just in his mercy wanted to give Adam and Eve a son to replace Abel who'd been murdered. Then in chapter 5, you get one of the genealogies that I spoke about earlier, and you get the genealogy all the way from Adam down to Noah. So you get a genealogy of all the generations of the earth thus far. Okay? Then, in chapter 6, 7 and 8, you get the story of Noah and the ark and the flood. I'm not going to go into the details, they're so well known. <coughs> now, let's just get an idea of where we are date-wise at the moment. Creation was around 4000 BC. We're now, when we come to the story of the flood, we're now 2400 BC. So, from chapter 1 up to chapter 5, we've actually covered 1600 years. And remember that Adam was a thousand years old when he died. So we've covered a lot of history in a very short space of time, you know, in the sense of the chapters. So now we're, we're well motoring, but when we get, okay, to the story of Noah, we're 1,600 years on from the creation, from Genesis chapter 1, and the date is around 2400 BC. And, uh, and of course the point is that now civilization has become so evil, and uh, in fact what the Bible says of man in general at the time of Noah is that the thoughts of his heart were only evil continually. So that is how godless the civilization had become. And so God destroys it. And so by the time we get to the end of chapter 8, the godless civilization of that time, apart from one family of believers, has now been destroyed. So now God starts again. We've got one family, Noah and his sons and their wives. Well, Noah, his wife, his sons and their wives. Okay. Now then, in chapter 9, we're now at the point where Noah and, and his family, they step out of the ark onto a world that is a totally different place. Because the flood has changed everything. There's, n there's no longer ideal uh, climate or anything. The world is a vastly different place. Okay. And in chapter 9, you have the covenant that God makes with Noah. And, uh, I mean, for instance, one of the, the things, you know, that happened is that God said, right, now become meat-eaters. Up till now, human beings were herbivores, um, all vegetarians, only ate plants. Whereas now, God says, become carnivores. Okay, <coughs> it's okay for you to eat meat. Also, the human state, the state of society, i.e. human government, is introduced now, with the responsibility given to man to bring capital punishment upon murderers. So you see the, you know, God developing all the time uh, the way that he wants the world to um, occur. So there we've got the covenant with Noah. And of course we saw that in great detail in our Law and Grace series, so I'm not going to go into it now. Obviously I've got to keep going, this is cursory, this is a survey, it's not great detail. But also in chapter 9 you get uh, the little story um, of uh, a, a curse that Noah ends up pronouncing um, against all the nations that would spring from his grandson called Canaan. Now, what happened was that Ham, who was one of Noah's um, sons, what happened is that Noah gets drunk and he's, he's, he's lounging around naked. Now, Ham sees him. And what Ham does is he makes a kind of a big, 
you know, big thing about this, and, 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 he, and he mocks Noah in his nakedness. And, you know, I mean, obviously Noah's well out of order, you know, being drunk and that, and acting in such an immodest way. But Ham looks on, you know, the fact that his father is naked and goes and gets his brothers, all right, to kind of like, you know, to show them. Albeit the brothers, they cover their father, but without looking. Now, what happens is when Noah comes round and realises what Ham has done, he pronounces a curse against all the nations that would spring from Ham's son. So, Noah's grandson, and Noah's grandson, or Ham's son, was Canaan. See how prophetic that was? There was a curse pronounced against the Canaanites from this point in history, before the land of Canaan was ever there. Then in chapter 10, you have a, a, an account of all the different nations that were going to spring from all Noah's sons. Remember Noah's sons, Shem, Ham, and Japheth. Now, Shem was the one who brought the Semitic nations into being, and of course the Jews were Semitic. And, uh, but the point is that, that each one of Noah's sons, their offspring and the generations and their immediate ancestors, they all eventually became the forebears of the nations of the world. And as a family, uh, kind of, you've got a picture that they were like a genetic soup. And from them, all the different, all the variety of races and nations and cultures that God wanted, they all sprung from those three sons. So that now, you're going to have people being born who are black. Now you have people being born who are oriental. You see, the genetic soup, because God likes diversity. He doesn't like everything being the same, all right? He likes things to be diverse. And so there you've got an account of all the nations that came from Noah. And you can actually, although I'm not going to do it here because I haven't got time, but you can actually trace all the modern nations of the world and all the way back through history, you can trace all the different races from the sons of Noah. That's a fascinating study, but not to be done here. Right, chapter 11 brings us to the Tower of Babel. That story. Now then, since, since the end of the flood, since the flood came and went, God had been commanding mankind to spread out over the face of the earth. But they wouldn't. So civilization is still godless. That rebellion is still there. So mankind wouldn't. And they, they kept staying as one society. All the time, you know, one mass. And of course the point is, the reason that God wanted to break them down into separate groups and to spread out was because the more spread you've got, the less evil can happen. You see? You know, but the more mass... This is why cities are more evil than rural areas. Obviously, because the more mass of sinners you get together, uh, the more scope there is for evil and sin to multiply. And, uh, you know, so God was saying, spread out across the face of the earth, and they wouldn't. They were staying together as one massive society. And it culminated in the Tower of Babel. And uh, the reason, um, you know, that, that possibly the Tower of Babel came to being was that probably, you know, you know I'm, I'm sure this has got to be the correct interpretation that people have come up with, is that mankind remembered the flood. They remembered that disobedience brought on a worldwide flood. So therefore they thought, right, you know, well, God is telling us to spread across the face of the earth. We're not listening to him. We're doing our own thing. There's nothing we can't do. So they built this tower. I'm sure the idea being that if God decided to flood the earth again, they'd all go in the tower and escape it. You know, forgetting that God promised Noah he never would flood the earth again, but this is the state that civilization was in. And so what God did, because what God says, he, he will get, he will get. So what he did is he confused their languages. And suddenly you've got all these people and suddenly they all start speaking different languages. They don't understand what they're saying. 
And, and of course, what happens is that therefore everyone you know, has to end up going and joining on to the people who are speaking the language that they understand. You see? So therefore, God divides them up, as it were, into little societies. And there you have beginning number seven, the multiplicity of human languages. Where, where do languages come from? Bang, there's your answer. And also, in chapter 11, uh, you've just got, um, like, the section from, from verse 10 uh, through to verse 26. And there's just a couple of verses that um, I want to read in one moment, all right? But uh, in, in, in verses 10 to um, 26, you get the account of Shem. Specifically, goes into a little genealogy of Shem, remembering that of Noah's sons, Shem was the one in the Messianic line, gave rise to the Semitic nations, and Israel was a Semitic nation. Now, in that, um, we're in chapter 11. Just notice, in verse 16, all right, we read this. Canaan was the father of Sidon, his firstborn. Uh... Oh, I've got the wrong verse there. Forget that. Um, but, but in verse, in one of the verses, it's obviously not verse 16 there, but you get mention um, a bloke called Peleg. I've just written the, the wrong verse down. Is it? Oh, right, sorry. Yep, there you go. Yeah, Peleg, that's it. You get a bloke there called Peleg. Now, his name means division. Now, if we just cross-reference that... Um, Back uh, with verse 25, you get here, one was named Peleg because in his time the earth was divided. And that was why his name was Peleg, because it means division. Now, what that shows us there is that sometime after the flood, all right, and the Tower of Babel, the world, which was up to that point in one single landmass, was divided. We don't know how it happened, all right, it could have just been the result of the flood you know, sort of like ongoing effects, volcanic activity or whatever, or it, you know, some people think it could have been a massive asteroid, but something, you know, sort of like, you know, sort of landing on the earth, but something happened and God divided the single landmass of the earth and, and they all floated away from each other and became the continents and the islands that we have today. And of course the point is that how this would have happened is these groups of people, after the Tower of Babel, you ended up in whatever group spoke your language. And obviously then you would wander off because there was no reason to stay together anymore because you didn't understand what people were saying. So each, each group of people speaking the same language wandered off into a different part of this massive landmass. Then the landmass starts dividing and they all end up floating off into different... Now that is why, uh, you know, the Chinese all ended up in China. You know, can you see how God did it? He got the nations that he wanted by dividing the people off from each other and then dividing the landmass off so each of them were floating off in different areas, you know, different ways, and they became the modern races with the geographical spread that we have on the earth today. So God got what he wanted. He was telling them, spread out. They wouldn't, so God made it happen, and he ended up with all the nations and different cultures that he wanted. So there you have beginning number eight. You have the beginning of the nations.
And uh, the, this, in, in, in these verses, the account of Shem ends there with mentioning Terah, who was the father of Abraham. And, uh, you know, of course, he gets a, a little section of his own at the end of chapter 11, because he's obviously uh, in the messianic line. And remember that ultimately Genesis is tracing the messianic line. Right, now, from chapter 12 through to chapter 25, we get the story of Abraham. And we get our final beginning, beginning number nine, the beginning of the Hebrew race. And we've now, when we get to chapter 12 and the beginning of the story of Abraham, we've now covered 400 years on from the flood, all right? So when we come to Abraham, we've now covered the first 2,000 years of world history. So now, with the beginning of the Hebrew race, with the beginning of the Jewish people with the story of Abraham we are now at 2000 BC all right so then the story of Abraham in chapter 12 God calls him and now you get the real beginning of the unfolding of the plan of redemption that was hinted at by the Lord when he spoke to the serpent in chapter 3 and what happens is that God here he calls Abraham and he makes a covenant with him, all right? And of course, those who remember the Law and Grace series will remember what sort of covenant this was, but no time's going into that here. But basically, the covenant was this. One, that he would inherit the land of Canaan. Number two, and remember the land of Canaan ultimately taking its name from the fact that Canaan, who was cursed by Noah, his descendants ended up there, the Canaanites. So, number one, he should inherit this land of Canaan. Number two, that he would become a great nation. And number three, that through that nation that he was going to become, all the other nations of the earth would be blessed. Of course, the reason for that was salvation. And salvation touches every nation under the sun. So then, God having called Abraham, who in effect becomes the first Jew, all right? He was a Gentile. Well, there were only Gentiles. Well, there weren't Gentiles, because you only have Gentiles if you've got Jews. There weren't anything, they were just people. But now, in calling Abraham, God creates a nation of his own. But remember, although this nation is promised that it's going to have its own landmass, what's unique about it is that it was a nation before it had anywhere to live. I mean, we're, we're Brits because we live in Britain. Um, you know, sort of like, I mean, French, live in France. But Israel existed as a nation before it had a land. That's unique. Anyway, so what happens is that having been called, Abraham goes off and he settles in the land of Canaan. He goes and lives there. And, um, and he stays there a while. There's a famine. Then he goes off and he spends some time in Egypt. And it was when he was in Egypt that you get the story of uh, like the Pharaoh of Egypt really took a liking to, um, to his wife, Sarah. And, and Abraham lies to Pharaoh, saying that Sarah was his sister, because he was frightened that if Pharaoh knew that she was his wife, that he'd have her killed or something like that. So he lied to her. It was a half-truth. Sarah was actually his half-sister. But there, Abraham lies to Pharaoh. Now then, in chapter 13, he goes back to Canaan, and uh, he's, he's got his, um, his nephew with him, a guy called Lot. And uh, Lot decides that 
this this land wasn't big enough for the both of them, <laughs> which is a bit silly. We're going to see Lot. Lot wasn't very clever anyway, and uh, so Lot wanted to split up. So so Abraham, being a believer, oh, he told lies. He was a sinner, but also he was a believer. He knew how to give and be gracious. He gave Lot the first choice. He says, right, you want to split up. You choose which part you want. I'll take the bit that's left. That's graciousness, isn't it? So then Lot, rather foolishly, because Lot was. He chose the plain, the plain of Sodom to go and live in. So he decided he'd live in Sodom. Whereas Abraham was left with Hebron and he lived there. Now then, in chapter 14, four Babylonian kings, the Babylonian Empire wasn't an empire. It, it, it was made up at that point of different nations and kings and that. But four of them, they got together with their armies and they invaded Sodom. And uh, they, they, so they, they carry off Lot and his family with all the booty. And Abraham goes and rescues them. So Abraham hears that his nephew and his family have been carted off by the Babylonians. Abraham, who of course is a rich man, God's blessed him, he's got like his own private army and everything. So he goes after them and he defeats them and rescues Lot. And uh, it's then, as he's coming back from that battle, that you have the famous encounter with Melchizedek, who was the priest king of Salem. Now Salem later became Jerusalem, Jerusalem, all right? So Melchizedek was the priest king of Salem, and he was a believer, all right? And according to the writer of the Hebrews, he constituted a type or a symbol of the priesthood of Jesus. So Abraham coming back from this battle, he has his encounter with Melchizedek. Uh, and of course, God blesses Abraham through, through him, and, and, and Abraham acknowledging his priesthood gives him like a tenth. Uh, then in chapter 15, you have the reaffirmation of the covenant that God makes with Abraham. So God outlines the covenant again. And you then have this quote, Abraham believed the Lord and it was reckoned to him as righteousness. So there you have it, salvation by faith in the pages of Genesis, right? Brilliant. Then you get a prophecy the Lord speaks to Abraham and tells him of a time when this nation who was going to spring from him would end up uh, in slavery for 400 years. We'll see about that a little bit later. Chapter 16. Now then, Abraham knows and Sarah knows, because God has told her husband, that he's going to be the father of a great nation. Problem. Sarah was barren. Abraham didn't have any children. So, here's a problem, isn't it? You're going to be the father of a great nation. You're already old, and I mean, they, they were old. They were elderly, all right? And you haven't got any kids. So, Sarah persuades Abraham to get himself an heir, all right, a son and an heir, by sleeping with her maidservant, Hagar. Now, this is a wife who really wants a kid. <laughs> can you imagine your wife persuading you to go and sleep with her, her maidservant so you can get a son? But anyway, she suggested it. Abraham, being where husbands usually are, decided that, right, that's enough for him, he better do it. So he did it. And he then ends up with a son called Ishmael. Right. So here, Abraham sleeps with Hagar, who was Sarah's maidservant, and produces a son. All right? Ishmael. But Ishmael, this son, wasn't, as it turned out at all, in the Messianic line. Wasn't, this, this wasn't of God. It was a daft idea, this whole thing. It's a typical idea of man looking at what God wants and says, right, now how can we come up with it? Well, the answer is you can't. God comes up with it. Then, in chapter 17, 
almost as if to get his own back, God gets everyone circumcised. <laughs> so, um, you know, <laughs> circumcision is, is here given um, as the sign of the covenant, okay, uh, you know, regarding the Jewish nation that was going to be. So, uh, you know, a bit of, bit of eye-watering there. And uh, Abraham, whose name technically thus far was Abraham, which means exalted father, is now renamed by God as Abraham, which means father of many. Of many. And uh, Sarah, whose name was Sarai, now becomes Sarah, both names meaning princess. But you often get, you know, that God renames you. As it, I mean, we've all got, we, we don't know what it is, but in the Bible, we've actually got a name that when we get to glory, it, only you and Jesus are going to know it, you see. It's just a little thing that God does there, all right? I mean, I get, he thinks, well, I've just circumcised them, now I'll, I'll give them a new name. It might take their minds off of, you know. <laughs> <laughs> and, and, and God now promises that Sarah would bear a son. Now, Sarah is 90 and Abraham is 100. But, but God reaffirms, look, no, it's Sarah. Sarah is going to have your son. Now, um, this, this, this son and heir, all right, was to be called Isaac. Now, here's the messianic line, and God says his name is going to be called Isaac. And the reason for that is that when Abraham and Sarah knew that God had told them that Sarah was going to have the child, they both laughed. You know, they couldn't believe it, they laughed. And uh, Isaac means laughter, so that's how Isaac got his name. And, um, you know, and, and, and of course, you know, sort of like everyone is now circumcised. Which, <laughs> right, now, chapter 18. Um, some angels appear. Uh, they come and have dinner with um, Abraham and, and Sarah, and they, they confirm the promise about Isaac, so they just go over that again. Um, and, and they also reveal that um, judgment was impending on Sodom and Gomorrah because of all the immorality there, and uh, so Abraham gets a prophecy about that. And uh, you get there the thing when, when Abraham intercedes uh, for Sodom, you know, sort of saying to God, look, if there's any righteous will you still do it? And God said, basically, no. And uh, it's, it's in that context that Abraham comes out with the most wonderful statement in that chapter is when he says, shall not the God of all the earth do right? Now, that's faith. That's, that's worthy of Job, that is. And when we come on to Job, we'll see what faith is all about. But here, Abraham says, look, sh shall not the God of all the earth do right? But basically, he intercedes, and God, God acknowledges that he will not judge Sodom as long as there are any righteous there, any believers there, all right? And, um, you know, and of course, the point was Lot was there. Now, Lot was not a very impressive believer. He was a downright carnal one, but he was a believer. Therefore, God wouldn't judge Sodom as long as Lot was in it. So then, in chapter 19, what we have now is that the angels rescue Lot and his family before the judgment on Sodom and Gomorrah actually fell. And you get the horrific stories of what the people who lived in Sodom wanted to do with the angels, thinking they were men. It was absolutely awful. And, uh, you know, but the angels go in and they bring Lot and his family out. Uh, before the judgment fell. And of course there you, you have the principle which, which is maintained throughout the scripture and it's the principle of the removal of believers before God's judgment falls on the ungodly. And of course, you know, the most relevant you know, thing for that, you know, for us as the church is the rapture of the church. Because the great tribulation is God's judgment on the ungodly, a world that has rejected him. But we're believers, we're not under, you know, we're not destined to wrath 
as the Bible says. So therefore, we will be removed, taken to heaven, before the judgment falls. And so here, Lot, as a believer, albeit a very carnal one, is rescued uh, from Sodom and Gomorrah before the judgment fell. And of course, you get the fire and the brimstone bit. And uh, the angels told them that when they were fleeing, they weren't to look behind them. Well, Lot's wife did, and she turned into a pillar of salt for having gone against them, um, you know, sort of uh, having gone against um, what the angels said. Then you get the story, you know, and this, this, this kind of gives you a further idea of Lot, all right, um, that, that what happens is that his, his two daughters um, sort of like work out that they can't ever see themselves getting men and getting a family, and they wanted a family. So what they do is they, they, they get Lot in, in a drunken stupor, so he doesn't know which way's up, and basically they fornicate with him. And so they become pregnant by Lot. You know, so you get an idea of his family, you know, I mean, they're not exactly, you know, I mean, they're believers, but my goodness. But then we saw Noah, didn't we? You know, sort of drunk and, and lying around naked. I mean, it was, it was some, some weird stuff here. And, you know, but nevertheless, the Bible tells it the way it is. And uh, so, so they, they, they get pregnant. Now, what, what's interesting is that the resulting sons, because each, each of the daughters, two daughters, they had a son each, and their sons became the origins of the Moabite and the Ammonite nations. One son was called Moab, and the other one was called Ben-Ami. And those two children were the beginnings of the Moabite and the Ammonite nations. And the point is that throughout Israel's history, in the Old Testament, those two nations were always trying to destroy them, to wipe them out. And you see there, that even though we're, we're set free from sin, the point is that, you know, often it becomes a thorn in your flesh. You know, they did what they knew to be wrong because they were believers, and the point is they paid the price for it ever since, and uh, it's just kind of the way it works. Right, then uh, we're up to chapter 20 now, aren't we? And uh, we, we have here Abraham and, and Sarah uh, settle in Gerah for a time. So they leave Canaan now, and they go and settle in a place called Gerah. And uh, the king there was a guy called Abimelech. Now, you get a repeat performance from Abraham as to what happened when he was in Egypt with Pharaoh, because this guy Abimelech, see Sarah was, was incredibly beautiful, even at the age of 90. She, she was incredibly beautiful, and wherever she went, everyone wanted to marry her. Wherever she went, everyone wanted to marry her. And here, Abimelech, Abraham can well see that Abimelech has really taken a shine to Sarah. So, fearing that Abimelech might have him killed or something like that to get his wife, um, uh, uh, Abraham tells Abimelech that, um, you know, that Sarah was his sister. So Abimelech goes to take Sarah for his wife. And, uh, but God speaks to him in the nick of time and he realises that Sarah was married to Abraham and so Abimelech doesn't actually do it. But there, you know, you clearly get in Abraham there's a besetting sin here. And it's, it's, it's that he's prepared to tell lies for self-protection. But the point is, it's only his unbelief and lack of faith that makes him, you know, because there was nothing to fear here. He was seeing illusions. He was getting frightened over things that weren't happening. But, but you know, here we have this real besetting sin of Abraham. He was a bit of a liar, okay. Now then, in chapter 21, we have the birth of Isaac. So here we have the messianic line. And um, Hagar and Ishmael, now do you remember Hagar and Ishmael? Hagar 
was the she she was Sarah's maid servant whom Abraham had fornicated with and they had produced Ishmael all right the idea being that Ishmael could be the heir right now that Abraham and Sarah have got a genuine heir their own child now Hagar and Ishmael are sent away there's no place for them anymore because Abraham and Sarah have got the heir that they needed the child who was born of promise from God and in the New Testament, Hagar and Ishmael being sent away, they become an allegory of law and grace. And it works like this. You see, Ishmael represents the old covenant. Ishmael represents the effort of man. You see, because Ishmael came about by Sarah saying, Abraham, you, you do this to fulfill God's will. It was the efforts of man. All right, And therefore, the old covenant, the effort of man, finds no place in God's kingdom. So Ishmael is sent away, whereas Isaac represents the new covenant, and the new covenant accomplished purely by God and belongs in God's kingdom. So can you see, that's the allegory. Law, what man does, absolutely no good, but grace, what God does, and of course salvation is all of grace. Then you have uh, the story of Abraham who makes a treaty with Abimelech. All right, so he makes a, you know, like we'll be friends for life, like. Now then, in chapter 22, um, Abraham is now tested by God. And it works like this. God asks him to go to Mount Moriah and to sacrifice Isaac. Now that's a heck of a, you know, God wanted Abraham to go and to kill Isaac, his only son. And Abraham, knowing what God was saying, set off to do it. But at the very last moment, just as Abraham was about to kill Isaac, God provided a ram at the very last minute. Now then, this is one of the most profound pictures in the Old Testament of the death of Jesus. A picture of Jesus on the cross, the Son offered up by the Father. It's... The replacement of the ram at the very last minute speaks of substitution because, of course, Jesus died in our place. So the sacrifice was a substitution. But also the reason that Abraham was so willing to sacrifice Isaac as unto the Lord was because he was utterly convinced that if he did, the Lord would raise Isaac back from the dead. So it's a picture of resurrection as well because, of course, Jesus was raised from the dead. Now, I could do a separate study and speak for an hour and a half on this. It's so profound. But also, this happened on Mount Moriah. Mount Moriah became the Temple Mount in Jerusalem, the same place where Jesus died on the cross. So there you get an amazing picture in the heart of Genesis of the actual death of Jesus. So there you have Abraham being tested. Would he be willing to sacrifice his own son? And uh, that's why in Hebrews it talks about people in the Old Testament who, through faith, you know, sort of like, you know, sort of received their dead back through faith. You know, because I mean, Abraham was, was quite convinced that he was going to sacrifice Isaac and that God would raise him again from the dead. Now, chapter 23, you get the death of Sarah. Chapter 24, Isaac grows up now and uh, he marries Rebekah. So a wife is found for him by Abraham. Rebecca being his second cousin. Chapter 25. Now, Abraham outlived Sarah by 38 years. So Abraham grew to a good old age. When Sarah died, Abraham lasted 38 years more. And he married again. And he married a girl called Keturah. 
and uh, she, she bore him six more sons. And, um, and it was from them that the Midianite nations came. Then you get the death of Abraham. All right. So, so there, there's the end of the story of Abraham. Now, in chapter 25, from verse 12 to 18, you get an account of Ishmael's line. Now remember Ishmael, he was Abraham's son, but not the Messianic line, all right? And he was the originator of the Arab races. So the Semite nations include the Arab races, all right? But Ishmael, okay, remember, being a picture of kind of like the old covenant rather than the new, being a picture of the flesh rather than the spirit, being a picture of, of what man does rather than what God does, all right, he became the father of the Arabic nations. Now, the point is, we saw with Cain and Abel, all right, that that which is of the flesh ends up hating that which is of the spirit. And, of course, the significance of it is, is you have the traditional hatred of the Arabic nations of Israel. And Islam, which more claims that, that everything went wrong at this point, and that Ishmael was the messianic line, and that eventually it was Muhammad who was the great prophet who was going to come. So, to this day, Ishmael is still in conflict with Isaac. You see the point? That which is of the flesh. Because, of course, Islam is a totally legalistic faith. It's totally you earning your own salvation. And uh, so the Semite nations coming from Shem, the sons of Noah, all right, the Arabs are a Semite nation, but so is Israel. But Israel sprang not from Ishmael, but sprang um, from uh, Isaac, okay. But there you get a genealogy of Ishmael, all right. And then in, in, in verses 19 to verse 34, to, to the end of that chapter, there you get the story of the birth of Isaac's sons. And uh, he had twins, uh, Jacob and Esau. And uh, you'll remember that uh, Esau was the oldest. So as the oldest son, he would have been in the Messianic line. He would have been the one who, who got the blessing, as it were. And uh, when Esau was born, Jacob came out behind him, hanging on to his, his ankle. So the point is that even there, you had Jacob wanting to be first like trying to pull Esau back in so that Jacob could get out first, you know, a real picture of, you know, of how, how the man was going to develop, all right. But, uh, but then the story goes on and they grow up and, uh, you know, so now Esau and Jacob are, you know, a kind of adult now. Uh, and, of course, what happens is that, that Jacob swindles Esau out of his birthright, uh, you know, all for a pot of soup or beef stew. And, uh, you know, because Esau was an, an, an hairy man, you know, and he was, he, he was out, you know, sort of like in the fields and hunting and stuff like that. Uh, but the Bible says, in contrast, I mean, Jacob was that and smooth man. I mean, I'm quoting from the AV here. And, uh, and, and a smoothie he was. He was a real smooth <laughs> operator, as, as we're going to see. And he swindles uh, Esau out of his birthright so that now... Jacob becomes the messianic line, even though he swindled it out of his older brother. And uh, the descendants of, of Esau, because you get, you know, like a little genealogy there, and Esau um, was the, the forerunner of the Edomite nation. So the Edomites came from Esau. Now then, then you get chapter 26, and uh, we're, we're, we're really into the story of Isaac now. And... Um, 
he's he's still in Gerard. Do you remember Abraham moved to Gerard, and uh, he he's still there, and. Um, the king at the time was Abimelech. Now, not the same Abimelech who was there when Abraham was there, but Abimelech's grandson was called Abimelech as well. So it's the same name, but a different person, all right? But just in the same royal kind of line. And, uh, and what happens here is that Isaac repeats his father's sin of lying to Abimelech about his wife. So in the same way that Abraham used to go around lying to people about his wife, Sarah, Isaac goes around lying about his wife, Rebecca, because she was exceedingly beautiful as well. And you get very much a repeat performance, a real kind of like father, like son here. And, um, you know, and, and so it's, it's kind of a bit strange. And then Isaac makes a treaty with him. So, so here you virtually see Isaac is, is mirroring Abraham's life. And there's a reason for this. And the reason is because Abraham in the Old Testament is a picture of God the Father. God the Father originates everything. Everything was down to him, the plan of salvation, creation, everything originates with God the Father. And of course everything originated with Abraham. He was the first Jew, he was the first to do everything. Now Isaac, rather than being a picture of God the Father, Isaac is a picture of Jesus the Son. Do you remember Isaac? He was about to get offered up on Mount Moriah See, Isaac is a picture of Jesus. And he only did what he saw his father doing. Do you remember Jesus said that? He said, I only do what I see my father doing. Well, Isaac mirrored, he only did what his father did. He even committed the same sins. Committed the same sins as his father Abraham. He only did what he saw his father doing. So can you see there, Isaac is a picture of Jesus, the son. Now then, having done that, now in chapter 27, we um, go back to Jacob now and see how he's getting on. You know, the terrible twins, Jacob and Esau. And um, having manipulated Esau's birthright out of him, um, Isaac is now getting a bit old and he can't see very well. And uh, Jacob now manipulates the validating blessing out of Isaac, his father. And what he does is he gets skins and that, so that when, when Isaac's saying, oh, you know, bring me Esau so I can lay hands on him and confer the blessing, you know, doddery, can't see very well. You know, Jacob turns up with all these animal skins, you know, so, 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 so Jake, sort of, um, Isaac is feeling all this hair, because Esau was an hairy man. And it's, it's Jacob conning the messianic blessing <laughs> out of him. But, you know, Isaac fell for it, and once conferred, it's... It's conferred, and uh, so that's it. And Esau discovers that now the con is complete. Esau's lost there. I mean, Jacob has conned him out of absolutely everything. And, and, and so Esau starts threatening to kill him. Now, Jacob, who, who you're beginning to see as a highly intelligent guy, right, in the face of Esau's threats to kill him, decides it's time to split. You see? They're right, okay, I'm off. And he flees to Haran, all right? And... Um, there's a guy, uh, his, his uncle, called Laban, lives in, in, in Haran. Laban was uh, his mum's brother. You know, I, Rebecca was his mum, all right, and this was her brother. So he, he flees to Haran to live with um, his, his uncle. Now then, in chapter 28, on his way 
he, he, he then has this dream, he sleeps, and he has the dream of the ladder and the angels descending up and down, blah, blah, blah. That's when he became a believer. That was like, if you like, when he was born again. And, 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 and so God now validates the messianic blessing on him. So even though he's conned it, there were two stages. He had to con it out of Esau, then he had to con the laying on of hands and the prophecy out of Jacob. Uh, sorry, out of Isaac. But now, God speaks to him and confers it on him. So, he's done it. He's got it, okay. And here, he becomes a believer. You remember how it works. I mean, typical Jacob. Remember, he said, Lord, if you do this for me, and that for me, and this, that, and that, and that, then I'll give you a tenth of everything I've got, and I'll do this, and I'll do that. So, this was Jacob, the schemer. You know, he was the ultimate dishonest businessman, all right. He, he, he always had an eye for making a buck. And uh, he, 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 he called the name of that place Bethel, which, which means the house of the Lord. Now, in chapter 29 and 30, we have the account of the 30, sorry, the 20 years that he stayed at Haran. Remember, he's run for his life from Esau to Laban, all right? And he stays with Laban for 20 years. So, 20 years with Uncle Laban. Now, things run in the family, all right? Because in his 20 years with Laban, Laban repeatedly cheats and manipulates him. What he had done to Esau, his uncle now does to him. And his uncle was a real con artist, just like he was. And his uncle conned him again and again and again. The real taste of he who lives by the sword shall die by the sword. And for Jacob, it was very much God saying, look, if you want to live by the con, you're going to die by the con. Because Jacob, he really gets conned by his uncle. And uh, what happened was, he fell in love with Laban's daughter, Rachel. He fell in love with her. And through all his life, she was the only woman he ever loved. And he fell in love with her. And, uh, and he sought her hand in marriage. And Laban said, yeah, sure, go ahead. But at the wedding, Laban tricked him into marrying her sister, Leah. So Jacob thought he was marrying Rachel, who he fell in love with. But Laban had another daughter, Leah. And Laban conned him into marrying Leah. And he didn't even realise it was Leah he was marrying. You know, I mean, this was, you know, amazing stuff. So he ends up marrying Leah first. I mean, he didn't, he didn't want to marry her, but he had to. And, uh, but then, eventually, he was able to marry Rachel as well. And, uh, you know, this was virtually done by Laban, getting him to agree that if he worked for him for nothing for about 15 years. <laughs> you know, so, I mean, there, there were no, no flies on Laban. But on the other hand, there weren't any flies on, on Jacob either. And, uh, and then later on, both Rachel and Leah forced concubines on him that he didn't want. So they made him produce children through their, their maidservants. You know, and Jacob got into... A right mess, you know, I mean, that happened later on. But at this point, let's just go through the eventual family that Jacob had, all right? Now then, through Leah, who was his first wife, the one that Laban tricked him into marrying, she gave birth to Reuben, Simeon, Levi, Judah, Issachar, and Zebulun. That was his first batch of sons. Rachel, who was the only woman he actually loved, gave birth to Joseph and Benjamin. Zilpah was Leah's handmaid, whom she thrust on him. She bore him Gad and Asher. And Bilhar, who was Rachel's handmaid, bore him Dan and Naphtali. So there you have, eventually, the 12 tribes of Israel. Now then, chapter 31, Jacob returns to Canaan. He goes, ultimately, back home. Now, he spent his time, the last few years, with Laban, into swindling him out of most of his herds. <laughs> and various other things. So he actually came away a rich man. 
So, I mean, the point was that Laban conned him left, right and centre, but he conned Laban enough to actually go back to Canaan, a very rich man. And uh, as soon as Laban finds that he's gone, he goes off in hot pursuit after him because, of course, Jacob's taken half the household and presumably half the family silver with him. I mean, he, he was an absolute crook these people were. And, uh, but eventually what they decide to do is rather than, than have an inter-family war like mafioso, right, what they, they, they simply come up with agreement that they, they agree that they will never ever go near each other again. Uh, and, and so they just leave it there, that they'll never ever go, you know, sort of near each other. Then in chapter 32, Jacob is preparing to meet with Esau and uh, greatly fearing the revenge that Esau might have in store for him. But uh, then he, it's then that he has the vision of the angelic army, of God's army, as if God's saying to him, look Jacob, I'm your strength, not you, it's my army that works, not yours. And, uh, and then you get Jacob's wrestling match with the Lord at Brook Jabbok. So, uh, you know, there he really, um, he really gets it and he's broken, his thigh's broken. So there's a picture, he's been a believer for 20 years, but now God sanctifies him, now he breaks him, now he fills him. And uh, he's renamed from Jacob, which means supplanter, or dishonest person, one who supplants, deceiver. Jacob, and he's renamed Israel, which means a prince with God. And can you see, we've seen already, Abraham was a picture of God the Father, Isaac was a picture of God the Son, but here, Jacob is a picture not of the Holy Spirit, but of the Holy Spirit's ministry of breaking and sanctifying the believer. You see that? So therefore, in Abraham, Isaac and Jacob, we have a picture of the Trinity, Father, Son and Holy Spirit. And in the Old Testament, one of the names that God uses more than most is, I am the God of Abraham, Isaac and Jacob. It's one of God's names. And it's a picture of the Trinity, Father, Son and Holy Spirit. Then in chapter 33, Jacob actually meets up with Esau, only to find that Esau has forgiven him and wants to be friends. So, happy ending there. Uh, chapter 34, uh, we now have a, a, a kind of a, an interlude here, a kind of a, a story about one of uh, Jacob's daughters, who was called Dinah. And uh, there was the son of a local ruler called Shechem. And Shechem loved Dinah and wanted to marry her but he forced himself on her and raped her. Now you mustn't think of this as like jumping out from behind a bush and because he loved her and she loved him, but nevertheless he forced himself on her, okay? Which obviously, you know, was a completely wrong thing to do. But nevertheless he wanted to marry her because he did love her. Now then, Simeon and Levi, who were her brothers, decided to get revenge. And what they did is they tricked Shechem into being circumcised. Shechem was a Gentile, but they tricked him into being circumcised. And because he was the son of the king, because he was circumcised, all the other males in the city were circumcised as well. And they tricked them into doing this, kind of like under the guise of leading them to the Lord God of Israel and getting them circumcised. And then, whilst all the males in the city were obviously indisposed because they'd been circumcised, they went in there with their mates and they butchered the whole city to get revenge. So that was, you know, a, a bit of a, it, it was wrong what Shechem did, of course it was, but the revenge that Simeon and Levi took was so over the top, they butchered an entire city, having tricked them into having all their males circumcised. So a, a kind of, 
you know, a little interlude there, just a little family story, you know, one of Jacob's kids and that. But uh, again, the, the Bible doesn't spare us the details. It's real people in real situation. Now then, in chapter 35, Jacob goes and settles in Bethel, where he'd had the vision of the ladder and the angels going up 20 years earlier. And God renews the Messianic covenant with him. So again, God speaks to him and renews that covenant that he had originally with um, Abraham. And uh, that, that chapter ends with Rachel dying, giving birth to Benjamin. So, so that chapter ends with Rachel um, dying, um, Isaac's wife, right? And, um, sorry, the death of her, I'm getting confused in all these Rachels and Rebecca's, all right? Jacob loses his wife, Rachel was Jacob's wife, all right? So she dies giving birth to Benjamin, and then Isaac dies, all right? So what happens here, that Jacob, he loses his wife, Rachel, she dies, and he loses his father. So, so, so here's a real sad chapter for him. His wife dies giving birth, and um, his father dies as well, Isaac dies. So a bit of a sad, sad chapter there. Then in chapter 36, and remember that Rachel, the one who dies here, was the, that was very confusing, wasn't it? But sound oh, sound effects from the back. Never mind. Never mind. So remember that Rachel, she was the wife he loved, the only woman he ever loved. So it really is. He he had two wives and two concubines, but Rachel, who dies here, she was the only one he loved. So particularly sad for him to lose her. Then. Chapter 36, you get the genealogy of Esau. Remember, he was the father of the Edomites, Jacob having swindled the inheritance out of him, all right? And, um, you know, so, so there's a kind of a genealogy of, of him. And uh, that actually is the ninth of our ten family trees. Remember I said at the beginning, there are ten, and this is the ninth one. And in chapter 37, the last of the Ten Accounts begins. So now we move on to what is in effect the last section, alright? It's called the genealogy of Jacob, or the account of Jacob, but in effect it's the story of Joseph, and how the nation of Israel came up to be dwelling in Egypt, where they eventually had the 400 years of being slaves that was prophesied to Abraham by God several years earlier, alright? So then, the story of Joseph, you know it quite well. Uh, Joseph was Jacob's favourite son, um, and it was attested by the fact that, that he gave him this coat of, of many colours. And uh, so of all his children, Jacob loved Joseph the best. He was kind of his, um, his favourite son. And of course, this, this made his brothers jealous. And uh, then Joseph started to have dreams from God that he would end up having authority over the whole family and over his brothers. Now, um, that, that, that kind of did it. I mean, the brothers were already jealous. But when, when, when Joseph, who was a younger brother, start, started saying, oh, well, I'm going to end up, you know, being over you all, you know, there were the, the, yeah, the, the dream of the sheaves bowing down and the stars bowing down, blah, blah, blah. Well, this was too much for the brothers, and, and, and by now their hatred knew no end. And so they sold him into slavery. Initially they thought, let's kill him. And, uh, but then a couple of the brothers interceded on Joseph's behalf, and so they decided um, not to kill him, but to sell him into slavery, which is what they did. And, uh, you know, they got his coat and killed a beast and smeared it with the blood and told Jacob that he'd been killed by a wild animal. And, uh, and at the end of chapter 37, uh, Joseph ends up in Egypt, 
in a slave market and he is purchased as a slave by a guy called Potiphar who was uh, the captain of the guard. So he was one of the chief military officers uh, in Egypt and, and he ends up buying Joseph um, as a slave. Now, in chapter 38 you get another little interlude and uh, you get here stories about Judah's children. Remember Judah, one of Jacob's sons? And uh, presumably the reason that you just get stories about Judah's children here is because Judah was the messianic line, all right? It was the tribe of Judah that Jesus eventually came to, um, you know, came from. I, I, I won't go into it, but you read chapter 38, they, they were nasty people. Judah's children were not very nice at all. You read it. I'm not going into it. Make anyone blush. Anyway, in chapter 39, it goes back to the story of Joseph. And he's in the service of Potiphar in um, Egypt, and, and, and God blesses him. And Potiphar really trusts him, and uh, he kind of ends up in charge of, you know, of the household. So he's really done well. He's, he's like real trusted right-hand man slave, as it were. God's really blessed him. The problem was that Potiphar's wife was what you can only call a trollop. And she decided that she wanted to have an affair with Joseph. But obviously, because Joseph was a believer and followed the Lord, he turned her down. Now, Potiphar wasn't, uh, you know, his wife wasn't used to being turned down. So what she did, she got her own back on him and told Potiphar that he tried to rape her. And uh, Potiphar duly had him thrown into jail, where under normal circumstances he would have just rotted until the day he died. Now in chapter 40 you have the stories of various people in the jail with him who had dreams and Joseph interprets their dreams and you know it all comes true and so he gets himself a name for being able to interpret dreams by the Spirit of God. Then in chapter 41 you get Pharaoh who's been troubled by dreams and uh, he wants his wise men not just to interpret the dreams, he wants his wise men to tell him what the dreams were first and then interpret them. And they would say, oh goodness, no, 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 we can't do this. But one of them remembered, in fact the baker, the king's baker, you know, remembered about um, Joseph, who could interpret dreams. And so Joseph is brought um, to Pharaoh and uh, kind of, you know, sort of like interprets the dreams, which is revealing that there were going to be seven years of bumper harvests, followed by seven years of famine. And um, another thing there, if you combine the ministries of John the Baptist and Jesus, you get seven years bumper harvest. If you then have the Great Tribulation, that lasts for seven years of, you know, sort of like um, famine and drought. It's a picture for Israel that, that the good years when Jesus came, they said no to. And so they ended up getting the bad years. Anyway, that's, that's, that's something else. But that's what the dream revealed. And uh, so what Pharaoh does, he's so thrilled with Joseph that he makes him like his Chancellor of the Exchequer, his number two, and he says, right, you take care of the economics and the storing up in our seven good years with the bumper crops, you arrange it all so that when the bad years come, um, we're going to be A-OK. -okay. So now, Joseph is the second most important man in Egypt, which also makes him the second most important man in the then known world. Because at that point, Egypt was a world power. So you, you, you can't get all his dreams that he shared with his brothers all those years before really are coming true. And uh, at this point, he marries. And uh, he, he has two sons, uh, one called Manasseh and one called Ephraim. And uh, we'll see more of them in later talks.
Now then, in chapter 42 to 45, um, we have the, um, the fact that this famine that eventually came um, affected the then known world. It was really bad. And um, it, it kind of really affected his brothers and Jacob back home in Canaan. And so eventually they, they, they ended up begging bowl in hand going to Egypt, which was the only thing anyone could do. Because everyone knew that, you know, sort of that Egypt had plenty of, of food, but no one else did. So they end up going, cap in hand, down to Egypt and um, not realising who he is. So they're going to Joseph. But it's so long since they've seen him and, and they just assume he's long dead or, or whatever that they, they don't realise it's him. But Joseph realises it's them. And so he decides to test them to see if they've turned over a new leaf. And you get the story of putting the gold cup in Benjamin's sack and the other brothers are prepared to, oh no, let him go and take us instead. And so basically he decides, yes, they have changed for the better. And uh, so therefore he makes himself known to them. And uh, they, they go back and they get jo Jacob, who's now really old. And, and there's this big family reunion. So it's all a, a real happy ending then. And um, in chapters 46 to 47, this is when, when Jacob, he moves all his family, all right, from Canaan, the whole lot, and they all settle in Egypt to live there with Joseph. Then in chapters 48 to 49, Jacob blesses Joseph's sons, um, Ephraim and Manasseh, and, uh, you know, he blesses Joseph's sons. And um, then you get a remarkable prophecy from Jacob um, to his 12 sons concerning the future of each tribe that is going to come from each son. And it's a remarkable prophecy because if you read through it, what he predicts about each tribe, you can see how it fits in perfectly with the eventual history of each tribe when, when Israel eventually developed into a nation in the land. A remarkable uh, prophecy there. And then at the end of chapter 49, we have the actual death of Jacob. And then in chapter 50, the last chapter, uh, Joseph has to reassure his brothers that he doesn't hold a grudge against them because they were fearing that he was just being nice to them for Jacob's sake. So when Jacob dies, they think, oh, crikey, perhaps Joseph will do us now. And, uh, and so Joseph has to, you know, kind of like assure them that it wasn't that he'd truly forgiven them. And he says one of the really marvellous verses in the Bible, one of my favourites, he says, you meant it to me for evil, but the Lord meant it to me for good. And that really is one of the secrets of forgiveness. It's realising that even though people do things to us that they mean for evil, the Lord means it for good. Because in everything, God works together for those who love him. And it's all God dealing with us and maturing us and sanctifying us. Back to Jacob, you know, being a picture of the sanctifying work of the Holy Spirit there. And, uh, you know, so, so he, he reassures them that there were no regrets. He didn't hold any grudges against them at all. And the book ends uh, in chapter 50 with uh, eventually the death of Joseph himself. And with that, the book of Genesis ends date 1800 BC. With the nation of Israel, though still very small, alright, it's still very small, basically still a large extended family. Now that's large for a family, but it's still small for a nation. But nevertheless, there they are dwelling in Egypt. Now we'll pick up the story, so for the next exciting episode, same channel, same time next week. So 
basically, there you've got it, Genesis, the book of beginnings. We've covered the first 2,000 years of human history. And where we've come to, we've got the nation, Israel, that the Old Testament is all about. Alright? And the Old Testament is all about that nation because from that nation, Messiah would come. Jesus, the man whom the New Testament is all about. So then, next time, Exodus, and we carry on this thrilling story.